I'm Mark Lynch, Director of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome back to the POMEP's Middle East Political Science Podcast, our series of conversations with scholars in the field. With us today is Toby Matheson, Senior Research Fellow at St. Anthony's College at the University of Oxford. He is the author of several recent books, including The Other Saudis, Shiism, Dissent, and Sectarianism, recently published by Cambridge University Press, and Sectarian Gulf, Bahrain, Saudi Arabia, and the Arab Spring that wasn't. Uh, Toby, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me, Mark. So I understand that you're currently doing research on the history of Sunni-Shia relations in the Middle East, and it's obviously a timely and important topic. Um, why don't we talk about that a little bit? Maybe we could start with, uh, with where many people think it all began, with the Iranian Revolution and the spread of revolutionary Islam from Iran. Uh, tell us what how does that change the direction of Sunni-Shia relations in the Middle East? It is true that the Iranian Revolution is a turning point for Sunni-Shia relations and, I suppose, sectarian politics um, in the region, but I think it's often been looked at um, from the wrong angle, um, particularly by people who are critical of Iran or, or its its revolution in the sense that, you know, the Iranian revolution is to blame for everything and then, you know, everything that followed is somehow, well, the result of the revolution. Um, and I think, you know, looking from today's perspective, I think it's more helpful to look at, yes, the impact of the revolution both on Iran itself, um, you know, how the, the new regime consolidated itself, how it um, established new paradigms of, of you know, religious politics, um, the, the rule of, of a cleric, uh, a clerics, and so on and so forth. What impact this had on, on Shiism, on, on Shia political theory, um, and on Shia parties and movements outside of Iran. But more importantly, I think, almost the impact of the revolution on Sunni Muslims more generally, um, uh, in particular on Sunni uh, Islamic movements across the Islamic world, really, and how the initially very positive uh, response of these Sunni political movements really frightened a lot of the, the, the regimes in the countries where these movements were based, uh, and particularly the Sunni Arab regimes, um, but also uh, Pakistan um, and others, and how they in turn then responded, particularly you know in the 1980s, with a kind of top-down um, Islamization of their societies, um, and a Sunnification in, in, in many ways. So um, I suppose the key, and, and that's what I'm going to try to do in my new project, is to look at, well, yes, the impact of the Iranian revolution on Shia movements and on the region more broadly, but then also the reaction towards Iran. Well, let's break that down kind of at multiple levels. So start with Islamist movements like uh, the Muslim Brotherhood or the Jamaat al-Islami or these kind of Sunni Islamist movements. So what you're arguing, it seems, is that this was not originally received as a Shiite revolution, but rather as, as an Islamic one. How did that change? Well, I think that's the key research question. How did that change? Um, and it's actually not so easy to answer because um, in the beginning, most Sunni political, Sunni Islamic political movements were positive uh, towards the Iranian revolution. Um, and in some cases, this lasted very long and in, in a few cases until today. Um, but, um, for example, in the Muslim Brotherhood, which initially really was very positive, um, include, I mean, all of its branches almost were very positive, um, it changed 
because some national, you know, in the, in some of the national branches, it changed quite quickly because of events in that particular country. Um, take Syria, for example, which is the most important and crucial example where the, the Muslim Brotherhood turned very anti-Iranian uh, in the context of the Hama um, rebellion and and the the the, the problems um, well between the Muslim Brotherhood and the Ba'ath regime in Syria, um, but. If you look at 1979 and even 1980, uh, the first few years, everything was still quite in flux. So um, uh, the alliance between the Ba'ath regime in Syria and the Iranians was not as strong in the beginning. Um, and, for example, in uh, Iran, you also had anti-Ba'ath uh, publications being published in support of the Muslim Brotherhood um, in Syria uh, for a while. Uh, but then, basically, the, the, the Syrian brothers, you know, didn't forgive um, the Iranians for not um, preventing um, the Assad regime from cracking down on, on Hama. Um, and um, I mean, recently a letter from Khomeini to Assad has uh, been published uh, by the Iranians saying that Khomeini actually told Assad not to do this or, or not to be harsh. But in any case, they didn't prevent um, the whole uh, episode. Um, and similar things happened in the number of other countries, but I mean Syria shows how events in one country and you know the beginning of Iranian foreign policy that's more pragmatic rather than ideological uh, led to a breakdown of of those alliances. How how does the uh, the the Iran Iraq war shape all of this? Because in the Gulf states mm -hmm. and a lot of the media adopts a very harsh sectarian rhetoric at that time. Is that something which shapes the way? Islamist movements or general publics see the Iranian revolution? Absolutely. So the Iran-Iraq war is crucial. And I think from we have to understand it basically as an anti-Iranian effort by, you know, all regional powers, by the, Iran's neighbors and by the international powers to contain the revolution. And the, the rhetoric is very anti, well, anti-Persian, but particularly anti-Shia. Um, and that has left a legacy uh, until today. And it is really in the context of the Iran-Iraq war that also some of the alliances with the Sunni movements breaks down. So, for example, the Egyptian Muslim brothers um, tried to mediate in the Iran-Iraq war. And it's quite interesting, the, um, the memoirs of the then leader of the Egyptian Muslim brothers, um, you know, he, he outlines how he, well, he presented the Iranians um, you know, in the first few years, they were sympathetic to the Iranians, but then when the Iranians rejected the ceasefire uh, and, and when the war turned, you know, ever more nasty throughout the 1980s, they became disillusioned by the, by the Iranian regime, you know, throughout uh, the Iran-Iraq war. When, when, the, when the campaign in support of Iraq against Iran it really gets underway uh, out of the Gulf, and they start using terms like the Rawafid or Safawi or that sort of thing. Is, is that something which commands a great deal of uh, of agreement, or did people see this as just kind of you know crazy propaganda? Um, and, and at that initial period when this was a very new type of language. Well, that's a good. Point. I mean, I think in some circle it's it's being received better or or e more easy uh, than in others, um, uh, and I think that's where the Gulf-based, um, the the Saudi-based kind of people and 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 movements, for example, they have a more you know uh, intuitive anti-Shiism um, kind of within them, and it's interesting that 
actually in that scene, for example, uh, Assyrian Muslim brothers play a huge role, uh, and there are a number of key books published throughout the 1980s um, that really equate the Iranian revolution with Shiism and a kind of project, a secret project to dominate the Middle East through 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 kind of sectarian proxies and so on and so forth. So very much a narrative that, that is still around today. That narrative is being shaped in the early 1980s um, uh, in part by um, some, you know, especially Syrian exiles um, in the Gulf. And you he really have a huge um, uh, surge in publications uh, throughout that time, uh, anti-Shia publications, um, then they're being translated, you know, from Arabic into all languages that that um, that you know Muslims read, in particularly in in South uh, Southeast Asia. Um, you know, it's being all these books are suddenly being published in Urdu, in uh, Malay, uh, in Indonesia, uh, and 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 everywhere. And and they really do have a lasting uh, legacy. So nowadays, you find these kind of anti-Shia sentiments even in places where there are no Shia or almost no Shia. Um, for example, in Malaysia. Well. Let's go back to the so we talked about the impact of the Iranian Revolution on the Sunni uh, Islamist movements, and I think people are pretty familiar with the fears of the regimes. What about with the Shiite populations themselves? How do Shiite movements or organizations in places like Bahrain or Saudi Arabia or Kuwait how do they respond to the Iranian Revolution? Do they accept it as a Shiite revolution or do they see this as something threatening to themselves and their own place within their domestic societies? In most places, there's been a kind of mixed response. So, um, if, if there was a kind of established um, uh, Shia, well, secular leadership, for example, um, uh, based on old uh, families, notable families, or something uh, of that sort, they would, in general, be quite wary of 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 you know the, the new kind of revolutionary regime, uh, um, the clerics, and their whole discourse. And you see this in most kind of old um, uh, uh, Shia societies, um, they would, these kind of old families would often have some kind of ties to, to, cleric, to clerics who were more trained, I mean, in, on the Arab side, in the Najafi tradition, so in the, in the Iraqi tradition, um, who again would be quite wary of, of the discourse of the uh, Iranian revolution. Um, and you have in that context and the establishment of, of new um, movements or branches pro-Iranian, loosely pro-Iranian or clerically led political movements in most contexts where um, Shia live and then a kind of local rivalry starts to play out between these, um, I suppose, older um, uh, political actors and the newer ones who are um, tied to Iran. But in the Shia worlds, uh, in general, the, the revolution has been, of course, crucial because after 79, um, there's always the question of how to relate yourself to Iran, um, a question that just didn't really exist uh, before, because you have now a, a clerically-led state that, um, you know, in its constitution purports to, well, um, have t uh, uh, 12 Shiism as its um, um, official religion and to also uh, um, export that uh, to a certain extent. So that question um, still remains a dominant question now uh, in, in Shia worlds. How do you relate yourself to Iran and to that um, model? So what are the major kind of lines of, of, of positions that people took on that question? I mean, at what point does this settle down into kind of a stable set of positions? 
You mean from from the Shia from, side? From, from, the, from the Shia communities and their relationship to Iran. Well, there isn't really a stable... Um, I mean, these things are always in flux. Um, and um, I, I suppose... You know, with the backing of a, of a state behind it, um, you know, uh, the importance of Qom as a religious center of learning of um, mm -hmm. Iranian-sponsored um, uh, people and, 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 and institutes um, just becomes much more important um, over the decades, mm -hmm. um, uh, just because, um, uh, well, they, they have, you know, they have the backing of a state and that leaves long-lasting uh, consequences at the same time after 2003 you have the you know the the shrine cities in Iraq um, really emerge again as very important centers of scholarship of uh, spiritual kind of belonging and of you know sites of pilgrimage and uh, centers of politics um, and um, uh, in particularly Najaf and uh, you know around Sistani and 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 the whole group of clerics uh, of that trend, um, you do have a very a competing power center and a uh, a different form of um, a different model of 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 Shia piety and and Shia politics that probably after two thousand and three had had more room again to mm -hmm. to um, position itself and um, uh, therefore you know these things are always in flux um, uh, the the dynamics between Najaf and Qom. Uh, are dynamics that are not, um, uh, you know, the question is not answered, you know, who's more important or, or who's more important in, in, in the different Shia uh, worlds. But, I mean, within, in the policy world, and I think also in, in the academic literature, I mean, there's just real questions about the extent to which um, Iran is able to try and mobilize uh, uh, Shia communities as proxy forces and the extent of independence that, uh, yeah. that, that that those groups or organizations are able to maintain on the ground. I mean, we see this with the Houthis in Yemen. We see them in, in Bahrain. Uh, we see, you know, constant uh, discussion about uh, Hezbollah and how it fits in its relationship uh, with Iran. I mean, how do you approach questions like that in terms of trying to gauge the degree of interdependence or dependence um, that emerges I mean, I think it's, you know, despite me now writing a kind of big picture history, um, uh, I think it's really important to look at the individual cases mm -hmm. and, and look at, you know, the changes in time, particular personalities, um, and so on and so forth, and not just, you know, instrumentalize one community mm -hmm. in a kind of, you know, short IR narrative. Well, so take so, like take like Bahrain, for example. Well, Bahrain or the Saudi Eastern Province that that I worked on a lot. I mean, right in the in of course in the IR literature, it's it's okay that the Saudis that there is a problem in the sense that you know the Shia don't fit the Saudi national narrative. They don't fit the religious nationalism, and some of them are kind of sympathetic to Iran. Um, but you know the the. the you know, if the if the discussion stops there, we have a you know really wrong and and very you know too simplistic view of the situation. So, for example, in the Saudi case, yes, you did have uh, these you know uh, um, kind of pro-Iranian um, clerics that tried to establish um, uh, um, a certain amount of, uh, of of political mobilization on a pro-Iranian basis. Um, at times, also militancy. But by and large, uh, the community didn't take up arms uh, in, in, you know, you know, in favor of Iran um, at all. And you actually see this in the last few years. You know, 
uh, in the context of the Arab uprisings, almost you know, and the crackdown on a Shia protest movements, you have uh, in fact almost the whole clerical leadership of the Shia community in Saudi Arabia now, you know, uh, backing the state's line, um, telling people not to protest, not to make any trouble, um, just you know, stay quiet. Um, and 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 basically mm-hmm. work together with the with the um, ruling family. I mean, one of the, the only person who didn't do that was Nimr and Nimr, and and he's been executed. But uh, you know, the people from all the different movements, whether they're pro-Iranian or anti-Iranian or the old clerical families, they more or less agree on the politics of um, you know not no confrontation with the Saudi state. But so you could read that in two different ways. You could read it as repression works. Or you could read it as it creates an opening for the firebrands to say, look, we, we really do need to form relations with Iran because this model of, of accommodation just isn't working. Yeah, I mean, there will always be people who will say that. And, and certainly um, uh, such, such trends have emerged. Um, but I'm, I'm just saying that, um, you know, if, if we look at the politics then of a sp- particular case, you know, things are mm-hmm. much more nuanced than um, oh, just, you know, relations to Iran or not relations to Iran. So even, as I'm saying, even the people who would, on a, cleric- on a, on a theoretical basis, think the Iranian model is good, would then in a practical case of now what to do in the eastern province would say, well, just keep quiet. Mm-hmm. Do you think that um, the kind of 2011 and the aftermath, or perhaps the war in Syria and its aftermath... Do you think this is represents a fundamental rupture uh, in the nature of Sunni-Shia relations, or is it? Do you see more continuity with, um, you know, kind of with the with the past, with the history? I mean, are we really living through something new right now? Well, I think the the three most important dates in the last few decades are 1979 and 2003, and then 2011 and 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 afterwards. Um, I think there are some, you know, a lot of the underlying kind of patterns had been in place but I think we are living in a in a in a new era um, uh, just because um, you know more spaces have opened up for for confrontations um, and there's there's a stronger I think internationalization of particular local conflicts mm-hmm. and and a connection to each other and a connection of that to the broader kind of Saudi Iranian or or Iranian versus a lot of others rivalry um, which was there to a certain extent before but I mean the, 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 the Syrian war has just opened up I mean has provided such ample space for all kinds of movements and 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 um, well just for the fighting out of a lot of the things that perhaps before were more latent or yeah I mean Iraq was a was a was an arena for this, but but Syria became so much worse. One last question. As you try and study something like this, I mean, this is an issue which is so laden with with current political narratives, mm. um, with propaganda from all sides. You know, how do you navigate uh, trying to adjudicate these kinds of historical or analytical arguments about the relationships between Iran and Shia communities on the ground or, you know, all the different questions that we've been talking about. I mean, how, how do you as a researcher try and approach these kinds of basic research questions? 
That's a very good question. Um, uh, it's quite difficult, uh, of course. I mean, I think one thing is important to try and gather as many sources and conflicting and different sources um, as you can. So not just rely on, you know, uh, literature in English or, um, uh, um, you know, English language um, newspaper articles uh, that make all these grand claims. Try to, uh, because, you know, quite interestingly, uh, on the level of of the political movements themselves, they will over, they will often have their own literature, which may be quite open about who their patron is or who their sponsor is or what their mm -hmm. political aims are or how they see themselves um, in a, in a larger kind of mythical mystical kind of connection. Um, uh, and um, you see this both on the Shia and on the Sunni side uh, increasingly that people refer to earlier periods. Um, you know, uh, connect their struggle now to something earlier, um, and, and really make sectarian points um, by by doing so. So try to balance, and then if something is is just not accurate, um, as for example, you know, the whole narrative around the Houthis, um, or if it's just accurate in a very limited mm -hmm. way, then really try to uh, pin that down um, uh, uh, in detail. Um, otherwise, I mean, what I'm trying to do is 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 combine a kind of broad. IR and international history perspective that looks at archives uh, around the world with um, you know interviews and and a kind of source sources from from the region uh, uh, mm -hmm. memoirs and and movement publications yeah it just it just seems like such a real risk of almost you know reading the past through where we are right now mm -hmm. and, and and you know looking back and imposing today's divides onto what was happening 20, 30 years ago. You see it a lot in, in uh, the literature on Syria, for example, where you, know, you, you see literature being written, which is uh, really it's talking about today. So, you know, trying to, how do you avoid, you know, kind of that kind of, of uh, kind of pollution of the history by where we are right now? Well, history is always written from where we are right now. That's why we write history. Um, uh, so we can't get around that fact. Um, but um, uh, we obviously shouldn't impose narratives on the past uh, just because we think they're relevant today. Um, so therefore, it's important to also outline, you know, political movements and projects that wanted to um, do something completely different, anti-sectarian projects, secular uh, movements, uh, leftist movements, um, and so on and so forth. But you know, looking at the, I mean, the the 1980s, the kind of literature that was produced, I mean, I don't think that's imposing a, a reading on them. <laughs> I mean, that's really when when this kind of sectarian narrative was amplified uh, uh, yeah. across the Islamic world. I mean, with the intention to contain Iran. Um, so uh, this is not really, I mean, this is not very contested uh, uh, in itself. I think it's more problematic when you look at earlier periods and try to read, you know, all the 19th century, mm -hmm. earlier 20th century period through through a kind of uh, sectarian lens. Um, I don't think that's, um, that's, you know, well, that's anyway quite dangerous. Uh, but even there, I mean, in earlier periods, you also have, um, and you have things that are connected to, to later outbursts um, of, of sectarian violence. And I suppose the key question is, um, you know, what are the reasons and causes for that? All right, well, we've been speaking with Toby Matheson, Senior Research Fellow at St. Anthony's College, University of Oxford. Uh, thanks for coming back to the program. Thank you, Mark.